What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. On this Sunday after Easter, still in the season of resurrection, being a Christian means living out a daily relationship with God in our daily life through faith in Jesus. And with today being the weekend after Easter, I'm very aware of the fact that there may be some of you here today who have just started in that relationship and it's all new to you. Or there may be some of you who are here today who've been away from that relationship and are just now coming back to it. And if either of those describes you, we want you to know that we're glad that you're here and that we're, we hope and pray that Lake can be a safe place for you to grow and develop in that relationship with God. Now, because this relationship with God is so unique and so one of a kind, the Bible gives us a variety of different word pictures and metaphors and images to help us understand what this relationship is like. For example, Jesus told us that this relationship with God is like a vine that is drawing, a branch that's drawing sustenance from a vine, or like being sheep that are cared for and watched out for by a loving shepherd. Other parts of the Bible describe other kinds of images that, that this relationship's like being part of a new family, being adopted into a new family with a loving father, or, or being clay molded by a master potter. And these word pictures capture our imagination and help us understand how to live out this relationship that is unlike any other relationship that we've ever had. But in today's reading from Romans chapter 6, we're confronted with a word picture 
that's a bit more challenging for us. The image of an obedient slave to a master. It's a hard word picture for us. And it's hard for a couple of reasons. It's hard because when Paul wrote these words and today, slavery wasn't exactly a positive thing. I mean, slavery has never been a vocation that people aspired to. You, you didn't choose the slavery track in high school or major in it in college. Instead, both in the ancient world and today, people become slaves out of desperation and because they're exploited by other people. And so word pictures like being adopted into a new family or being a branch drawing nourishment from a vine are far more positive for us and easier for us to relate with. But this image is also hard for us because over time, Christians have come to believe that slavery is wrong. And so it's not just that it's not something we would want for ourselves. Christians have come to believe that, that slavery is morally wrong. Now, back when Paul wrote these words in this letter to the Christians living in the city of Rome, very few people questioned the morality of slavery. Most just assumed that it was an essential part of a, of a healthy, well-functioning society. Every ancient culture that we know of practiced slavery. And at this time, um, roughly one-third of the people living in the Roman Empire were slaves. It was simply a part of life. And it really wasn't until the, the, the 16th and 17th and 18th centuries, particularly in the West, that Christians began to read the Bible more carefully as it relates to the topic of slavery. And out of that more careful reading of Scripture was born the abolitionist movement, the abolitionists, as you well may know, that asserted that the Christian ethics should lead us to believe that it is wrong to treat people as property when they're persons made in the image of God. And so Christian leaders like Hannah Moore and John Wesley, William Wilberforce, and one of my ancestors, an American Methodist pastor named George Peck, all led this movement to try to abolish slavery, hence abolitionist. And as this movement gained traction, it eventually led to the abolition of legalized slavery in the West. But it didn't come easy. An entire war was fought here in the U.S., with many lives lost, and the repercussions still influencing us today. And so thinking about this image that Paul paints for us here in, in Romans 6 is hard for us. And I think it's important for us to pause and to admit that fact. Pastor Greg has been leading us through a sermon series through Romans chapters 5 through 8 called Made New. And he's been exploring in this series how God transforms us after we come to faith in Jesus. And here in Romans 6, the Apostle Paul finds that this word picture of slavery captures some important realities for us 
about what it means to be made new. And so we're gonna talk about four of these realities. There are more of these in the passage, but we're gonna just zero in on four. Now let's start by considering why Paul finds this word picture helpful in the first place. We get the sense from our reading today that Paul is reluctant to use this word picture. In verse 19 of our reading, he even apologizes for it. He says, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. Because Paul knows that this is an imperfect metaphor. And that if we push it too far, we're likely to misunderstand the nature of this relationship with God. And so we can't allow this picture of slavery to overshadow some of the other pictures that we find in the Bible about like being part of a family or being a branch in a vine or being clay molded by a potter and so on and so forth. But why even use it then? Well, I think we find a hint earlier in chapter 6. Earlier in chapter 6, Paul described being a Christian as like dying and rising again, undergoing a death and resurrection, that that's how radical becoming a Christian is. And he likens it to baptism because the image of Christian baptism captures this idea that when we come to faith in Jesus, it's like we've died and we've come back to life again. Two weeks ago, Pastor Chuck Hunt, our associate pastor of family life here at Lake Avenue, told us that when this death and resurrection happens at our conversion, that we're brought out of the domain of sin and into the domain of grace. And Pastor Chuck showed us a, a clip from that, that wonderful story that, that Victor Hugo wrote, Les Miserables, from the film version of it where the main character, Jean Valjean, who's, who's a thief, moves from the domain of sin to the domain of grace because of a bishop's act of forgiveness in his life. But starting in our reading today, Paul anticipates a possible misunderstanding of that. Does being under God's grace mean that sinning doesn't matter anymore. In other words, if we died to who we were, it's like a death, and we've, we've rised, risen to new life in Christ, passed from the domain of sin to the domain of grace, but we still struggle with sin in our lives, and we all do, does this mean that sinning no longer matters? And I think that's what gets Paul to thinking about slavery here. And so the first reality that we find in this word picture about slavery is that our relationship with God is exclusive. It's like slavery because it's exclusive. In verse 16, Paul writes, we, we heard it read, if you present yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey. Here we find that Paul is thinking about a very specific kind of slavery here. He's not talking about being captured and sold as a slave or even being born as a slave. He's envisioning a situation where someone would present themselves to another person to be a slave. 
And this would happen in what's called debt slavery or bond slavery. In the ancient world, if you owed a debt to someone that there was no possibility that you could repay, you would present yourself to that person as a slave to pay off the debt, debt slavery. This was actually the most common kind of slavery in the ancient world. And it's still the most common kind today. Back in 2005, the International Labor Organization estimated that 8.1 million people in the world were debt slaves. It's staggering to imagine that that still even exists today. So trusting Jesus and entering into a relationship with God is pictured as presenting ourselves to God as debt slaves to obey Our obligation to sin has been broken. We've entered into a new realm, the realm of grace. And in that realm, we find ourselves slaves to God. Now, it's interesting here that to me that Paul only presents these two options, slaves to sin or slaves to God. He doesn't envision an option where we're not slaves to sin, but also not slaves to God. For Paul in this word picture, it's one or the other. You might picture it this way. Imagine someone who's just been released from prison. While they were in prison, they were under the domain of prison. Their lives were bound by the the rules and regulation of the prison. The prison determined when they ate, where they slept, where they could and couldn't be. But once released, they're free from the prison. But stepping out of the domain of the prison, they step back into a new domain, the domain of society. And now society has their own set of expectations and obligations that they're now bound to. So their new freedom from prison is not absolute freedom. They're free from that domain, but they've stepped into a new domain. That's kind of what Paul is picturing here. You see, our relationship with God is like slavery because we owe Jesus our exclusive devotion. We owe Jesus our exclusive devotion. Once we enter into a relationship with God through Jesus, he becomes number one in our lives and everything else in our lives falls underneath his lordship. Just as a slave has only one master and is a slave to the one whom they obey, the follower of Jesus has only one master. But there are lots of other masters out there that compete for our allegiance as Christians. The Bible has a word for these. The Bible uses the word idols. And I'm not just thinking of idols that are made of wood or cast from metal. Idols of greed and materialism. Idols of pleasure and control and success. Even our own family, even our own church can become an idol if it becomes more important to us than our devotion to Jesus himself. Our relationship with God is exclusive. And seeing ourselves as slaves of God can help us appreciate this and live it out. 
But in addition to being exclusive, this, this word picture shows us that our relationship with God is also comprehensive. Comprehensive. When we were slaves to sin prior to following Jesus, we were obligated to sin and death. But being set free means that obligation is broken. But if you've been a Christian, long, Christian longer than five minutes, you realize that that doesn't mean you automatically stop sinning. Right? Okay, maybe 10 minutes. But we realize that this obligation being broken does not mean that we automatically stop doing things to hurt others or to displease God. But it does mean that our old obligation has been replaced by a new one. Notice verse 17 again. You who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. This new obligation begins on the inside from the heart. Now in the Bible, your heart is all of who you are on the inside It's not just your feelings, although it includes your emotions, but it also includes your thoughts, your ideas, your passions, your affections. All of your inner self is your heart. And when we become Christians, we respond to the gospel. We respond to the message of Jesus from that inner place. You see, our relationship with God is comprehensive. It's like slavery because it involves all of who we are, our whole heart. All of who we are, our heart's response to the gospel. It begins inwardly with our thoughts and our beliefs and our ideas, and then out of the fullness of our heart, it flows into our relationships and our families and our careers and our homes and our politics and our possessions, everything. This is what Jesus meant when he said, the greatest commandment is to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Our relationship with him calls for our full self, not a divided heart, not a partitioned heart, but our whole heart. Our relationship with God is comprehensive. It calls for all of who we are. As Paul continues to develop this idea, we also learn that our relationship with God is transformational. Transformational. Entering into slavery changed a person. In the ancient world, some people would present themselves into debt slavery in order to be apprenticed for a trade. If a person was too poor to pay a master craftsman to teach them a trade, they would present themselves as a debt slave in order and in exchange for being apprenticed. So at the end of their term of bond slavery, they would have a trade that they could use to support themselves. The end of their term of slavery would change them. Now, it's interesting these verses really focus on the role of our physical bodies in this transformation. Look again at verse 19. Just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. 
Your members here refers to the members of our bodies, our ears and our eyes and our mouth and our feet and our hands. By offering the various parts of our body as slaves to righteousness, we become changed. This is part of our sanctification, being transformed into holiness to be more like Jesus. A lot of Christians I know neglect the important role their bodies play in their spiritual lives. We we can tend to view our bodies as a problem and as an obstacle because of all the unruly desires and passions that swirl around. And when we do that, we can reduce our relationship to God to just what's on the inside, the thoughts that we think, the beliefs that we ascribe to. And of course, thoughts and beliefs are important. But if we think our relationship with God is only our thoughts and our beliefs and what's on the inside, we have more in common with the Greek philosopher Plato than we do with the writers of Scripture. You see, it's with our bodies that we live out our thoughts and our beliefs and our values. Christian author Dallas Willard says that when we neglect the role of our bodies in our spiritual life, that this is a major reason why Christians struggle with how to live out their faith in their everyday life. By ignoring our bodies, we experience this disconnect between our inner lives and our actual routines. Because when we were under sin, the Bible says that that we developed these inborn, ingrained habits and dispositions that reside in our body that we've accumulated over a lifetime that lead us away from God. In fact, the, the Bible, Paul calls this the flesh, not our bodies themselves, but these ingrained dispositions and habits that we've accumulated. Willard says often when a Christian comes to do the right thing, they've already done the wrong thing because of these habits and dispositions that reside within us. And it's not that our bodies are bad. Think of it this way. If your body is the hardware, the flesh, these ingrained dispositions and habits are the software. You don't need new hardware although eventually you'll get an upgrade. But for now, you don't need new hardware. You need new software. You see, our bodies are how we live out sin or how we live out righteousness. It's with our mouths that we lie and speak hurtful things to other people. It's with our ears that we listen to things that we know are not true or we turn away and cover our ears and refuse to listen to people. It's with our eyes that we objectify others. It's with our eyes that we choose to look away from other people's pain. It's with our hands that we slam doors or write angry social media posts that we know we shouldn't. We embody the thoughts, the values, and the beliefs on the inside through the habits and dispositions we've developed in our bodies. But we can please God and love people with our bodies as well. With our mouths, we speak the gospel 
of Jesus. How will they hear if no one speaks it, right? With our mouths, we can speak words of hope and love and compassion. With our ears, we can listen to the truth and we can listen to people that others are ignoring. With our eyes, we can see those who feel invisible. With our eyes, we can see people as they really are rather than objectifying them. With our hands, we can embrace people. We can build and design things that make people's lives better. Our new values, new ideas, and new beliefs brought about by the gospel can become embodied in new habits and new dispositions. But that's exactly where we have the disconnect, isn't it? In fact, Paul calls this a battle between the flesh and the spirit, and it can be a battle, can't it? And that's why here Paul pictures us offering the various parts of our body as slaves to righteousness. Now, one way that we can do this practically is through spiritual disciplines or spiritual practices. Using our bodies to pray, using our bodies to study and meditate on Scripture, Using our bodies to serve the needs of others, to withdraw from noise and be in silence, to fast from food and other things. These are ways of aligning our bodies with these new beliefs and values and ideas. Listen to Dallas Willard's words, and we have a, a long quote we'll put up here from his book, The Great Omission. Willard says, one cannot overcome the hardened patterns of desire by force of will alone. We've all tried that, right? I'm just going to try harder. Doesn't work. Rather, it is as we by faith put our bodily being in subordination to Christ that we experience a new presence in our members, in our bodies, moving us toward the good things of God. Our part in this transformation in addition to constant faith and hope in Christ, is purposeful, strategic use of our bodies, replacing the motions of sin in our members with the motions of Christ. This is how we offer the parts of our body to him as instruments of righteousness, what Paul's talking about here. Spiritual practices are a vitally important way we can do this. Our relationship with God is like slavery because it's transformational. It changes us. It changes us. We receive a new identity at our conversion. We die and rise again. And the rest of our lives consists of becoming who we are in that new person. It's like the story Pastor Chuck shared from Les Miserables two weeks ago about the bishop who forgave the thief, Jean Valjean. Once Valjean was forgiven, he spent the rest of his life becoming the new man that the bishop saw him as. And it took his whole lifetime to become that person. We are in that same kind of process. The process of continually offering the members of our bodies as instruments of righteousness so that we too can be changed. Slavery helps us understand that. One more reality that we find, we find that this slavery word picture reveals that our relationship with God is purposeful. It's purposeful. And what I mean by that is that it's going someplace. It's set our lives on a trajectory. 
Verse 23 again, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Living under the dominion of sin leads us in a trajectory, and the end of that trajectory, the wages of it, is death. Living under grace sets our lives on a different trajectory that leads to life. Two trajectories, one ends in destruction, one ends in life. Our relationship with God is like slavery because it sets our lives in a new direction, a new trajectory. When we first come to faith in Jesus, it might not feel like much changes. I mean, for some people, a lot of things change, but for most of us, we don't see a lot of changes at first. Our lifelong habits and dispositions are still deeply ingrained in our lives. Following Jesus, becoming a Christian is not a magic pill. But what it does do is it changes very subtly the trajectory of our lives. And if you change the trajectory by just a few degrees, as any engineer will tell you, and I hear we have lots at Lake Avenue, over time that will take you in a brand new destination. Our relationship with God is purposeful. It's taking us someplace. So this slavery word picture helps us. It helps us see that, that our relationship with God calls for our exclusive devotion. It's comprehensive. It calls for our whole being. It, it's, called, it's calling us to transformation, and it's putting our lives in a new direction. Now, before we end, imagine with me what it might be if a group of Christians ignored these four realities. What would they look like? Well, they would probably be Christians who fail to see that their spiritual life is supposed to be exclusive. And so they'd be constantly trying to serve more than one master, continually struggling with feeling divided in their loyalties, constantly trying to accommodate the idols in their lives, but still trying to follow Jesus and wondering why their lives feel so fragmented and torn in so many different directions. They'd probably also be people who fail to realize that the, the call to follow Jesus calls for all of who they are. They would try to compartmentalize their Christian life from the rest of their lives. They would seek to live as followers of Jesus at church, but it wouldn't occur to them of what it might look like to live as a follower of Jesus in their job or in their dating life or in their marriage or with their family, or with their business practices. They'd probably be people who, who fail to realize that their relationship with God can change them. They'd probably be people that just accept their ingrained habits and dispositions and just live in defeat and frustration. And if you looked at their lives, they probably wouldn't look any different from those who don't follow Jesus. And finally, they'd probably be people who don't understand that their relationship with God has placed them on a new trajectory in life. I mean, they would know eternal life is in their future, 
But they wouldn't see the connection between that future and what they're doing today. That that's part of the journey. And so they'd struggle with a sense of aimlessness and a sense of, of, of purposelessness because they wouldn't know that God has called them for a purpose. Well, if that sounds familiar, I think it describes a lot of Christians that I know. We love to hear about being adopted into a new family, about being sheep with God as our shepherd, about being a branch with Jesus as the vine, but it's more difficult for us to hear about being slaves of God. Yet as inadequate as this word picture is alone, without it, we're impoverished by an important aspect of what it means to follow Jesus. As I read this, you know that I came just two months ago as your new associate pastor of adult ministries. And so you can understand as we think about discipleship and spiritual growth, why this passage just resonates with me. And so I want to challenge us today, all of us, to consider taking a new step today in our relationships with God. I can't tell you what that step will be for you. I mean, it could mean making an appointment with our Lake Avenue Counseling Center or picking up a book at the book table as you leave that, that you're gonna read and is gonna help you grow. It, it could be going to the Connect Banner and finding out how to get into a small group or it could mean visiting one of our adult classes and finding a place to grow. It, it could mean starting a new group with some friends that focuses on growing. I can't tell you what that next step is. But I want to invite you and invite myself, all of us, to consider what we might do to take a new step in this season of Easter to grow in our faith. Let's pray together. Let's just have a moment of silence. And during that moment of silence, invite God to speak to you about which of these four areas he wants you to pay attention to in your life right now.